The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Support for this show comes from the Spirituality and Health Annual Holiday Gift Guide, a special section in the November-December 2016 issue featuring inspiring and unique products. Reach our conscious community and reserve your advertising space today. Email Tabitha at spiritualityhealth.com or call 231-933-5660, extension 305. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Judith Schwartz. She's a journalist whose recent work looks at soil as a hub for multiple environmental, economic, and social challenges and their solutions. In 2013, she wrote the book, Cows Save the Planet. The book received the Nautilus Book Award Silver Prize for Sustainability. And now her new book is called Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World. And I'm going to I'm going to underline the hope part because I really hope there is hope for a thirsty world. The book is reviewed in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Judith Schwartz, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much, Rami. I'm looking forward to this conversation because it's so essential to just everybody's existence. So let me start with the basics. You know, we usually refer to... Our planet is planet Earth. Buckminster Fuller used to call it planet ocean, but never really caught on. So we still call it planet Earth, but it's mostly water. 71% of the planet's surface is covered in water. So how is it that we're in a, you know, we're, we're a thirsty world? How thirsty are we? And how did, how did we get there? Ah, okay. So that's an interesting question because in the last few years, we've all become aware of water scarcity and other water problems. Sometimes it seems like there's always either too much as in floods, like we're seeing um, in West Virginia right now, or there's too little as we've seen in the California drought. That's, I I guess, despite some some rain and good snow, they're still in a drought. Um, Yeah. So, um, yes, the amount of water that is on the planet is always constant, okay? But it's a matter of where that water goes and how that water flows. So um, the way I like to think about it is that our challenge isn't so much getting getting water or controlling water, but um, working with the water cycle. And the wonderful thing about that is, and this is something I explore in, in my book, is that it's not something in isolation. It's not as if we can address the water problem without also addressing or dealing with climate change and biodiversity loss and all of those other challenges that we're dealing with. They overlap, which on the one hand, 
makes everything even a larger challenge than we see before us. But it also presents tremendous opportunities because in addressing one, you're also helping to address another. So when I look at you know, the daily news and, you know, whatever else I might be looking at either online or on television or in the newspaper. I don't get the sense that we're working on any of these things. It still seems to me we're in tremendous denial. And one of the exciting things about your book is that you sort of highlight actual projects, people who are doing things that, if not for your book, I think would go under the radar. So am I right about that? Is it Absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing that I just, the more I do this work, the more strongly I feel that the problem, the, that it's our, it's the way that we talk about our problems that interfere with our being able to do anything about them. So um, I'd love to get to those, those, um, some examples, but you know, what I'd like to say just out front is first of all, to agree with you and say, no, we're not dealing with climate change and our water, the water crisis in a, in a global sense or in any of these huge problems. However, it's not because there aren't solutions, there aren't way, ways in. I believe it's a lack of imagination because once we start to open up the way that we understand these challenges, we find that there are ways that we can address them. I mean, I can just kind of leap in right now with climate change, if that would be useful to you. Yeah, actually, if you hold off just for one second, I want to use the term that you use, which I liked very much, water innovators. So we're we're talking about these people, I guess, who have, oh, I don't know, their imagination is far more open than, than ours. But before you go in and give us some examples, well, I like the idea that it's a problem of imagination, because then by freeing the human imagination, we can solve these problems. To what extent do you think it's not just that we haven't imagined solutions, but that we have a socioeconomic system that controls things in such a way to uh, promote the lack of solutions in order to empower those who benefit from the lack of solutions? That is a really, really tough question, and I certainly don't have the answer. And it's interesting the way you put it that way. I mean, I have my my hopeful hat, my idealistic hat, and then there is a, a cynical um, hat that I can put on from time to time. But um, that question does does exist. But I I'm not I'm not sure. I don't think that that's the primary matter. I think it's that we all we all accept the framing of our problems as we hear them from, let's say, from the news or from um, a lecture that we attend or whatever. And, and it's the framing that gets in the way. And I, when I say it's a, it's a failure of imagination, I think, it's, I think it's also because of the way that we in our society divide knowledge, okay? That knowledge is fragmented as opposed to holistic. So the people, the innovators whose work I find so exciting, even though most people would never have heard of these people because they're off doing their projects and not really talking about them. I find their thinking so exciting because 
because they are drawn, because they're bringing different fields together, because their thinking has no boundaries of discipline, if that makes any sense. And that oh, allows them to be creative. Nice way of, of putting that. No, no boundaries of discipline. They're sort of Renaissance people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, and that's so exciting to me. Yeah, I would see why. So, so give us some examples. Okay, so one example, it just pops into my head now because it's so improbable, is this couple that live in far west Texas, about the most remote and underpopulated corner of our country that you can find. And while their neighbors, well, actually neighbors in far west Texas is a relative term, but the people in that area are running out of water. However, they're doing fine because they're not depending on the dwindling water table. What they are doing is they are collecting condensation from their roof. So um, Marcus, this this fellow, this kind of Renaissance person who's doing 25 different projects at any one time, each of which might blow your mind. When he's not doing that, he's um, rescuing, doing bee, wild African bee rescues. So he he set it up so that when the heat, the, the way that the heat hits the, um, hits the roof, the metal roof. And as the moist air of the evening comes in, he captures that moisture. And that is what they use for drinking water and showers and cooking, etc. So that's fascinating. It's utilizing a source of water that without this technology, wasn't a source of water before. It would just evaporate. Exactly. Uh, I see where the word imagination comes in. Exactly. And then there are people who uh, I talk to in this book who, who use holistic planned grazing. Okay. That might be a new term for people. And people may have heard of the fellow Alan Savory, a wildlife biologist in who's uh, splits his time between he's from Zimbabwe but he splits his time between the US and Zimbabwe and so his what he developed was this means of working of managing animals so as to re, um, restore large landscapes and I did have the chance to go to Zimbabwe and see what he's done and it is extraordinary because you have desiccated land where nothing will grow and then a half mile away sorry it's Zimbabwe kilometer a kilometer away you have this lush landscape because they managed the cattle in a way that mimicked the behavior of the large herds that kept the that kept the the landscape functioning you know that maintained the landscape and that's something that we we forget that we like i guess one th what we forget is that the that water is part of a system it's part of a a biological system where you have an ecosystem where you have plants and animals and microorganisms and everything plays its part so there are ways to restore landscapes so that it is functioning again and i saw that many times Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. 
everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. It's really, really interesting. Let, let me tell you a quick story that I, I experienced in India a couple of months, well, the end of last year. I was invited along with many other people to go to uh, India and talk about, explore the, oh, I don't know, the re- restoration of the Ganges. And this is one, one of, if not the most holy river in all of uh, India. And it's disgusting. I mean, it's just, it's just totally poisoned. And part of it is there's insufficient sanitation. Part of it is there's these terrible textile mills and factories that are just pouring garbage into it. And that stuff we know about. But then the thing that interested me is that, because I'm on the religion end of things, and I was talking to a lot of religion, uh, religious people, when I asked them how it is they allow Mother Ganges to become so ill, so poisoned by their, their factories, their answer was, oh, no, she's spiritual. She cannot be poisoned, that, that I'm just not seeing deeply, and she's fine. And it was almost as if Somehow religion had been blinded, or, or, or religion was used to blind the people to the actual condition of this major resource of the country. Have you run into places where religion has been helpful and, or uh, those in where religion has been hurtful? Wow, that is quite a story. Um, you know, with the, the, in my travels, I really didn't encounter much in the way of people's religious views. I mean, the people, my experiences with people, whether in Mexico or in the U.S. or in Southern Africa, I mean, I know that these are you know, many of these people are very spiritual in their own way. It was very hands-on. It was very nuts and bolts. The, the the condition of the soil, whether there's bare soil, which means that when there's rain, the water hits bare soil and the soil erodes and it leaves the land in a condition that. It can't absorb water. It creates erosion. It creates kind of gullies and all kinds of other problems. So everyone was just excited to talk about that. Um, However, if you do peel back a layer, um, and this is something I haven't done much, but I'm beginning to do with some of my colleagues, people who, who share the same passion for regenerative land practices, there is a spiritual aspect to it. So. you know, that's some, that's not quite what you asked, but I, I can share that just a little bit because I think it's interesting because in all religions, as far, as far as I know, you would be the expert here, but this is kind of my, um, you know, maybe spiritual illiterate assessment is that there's a sense of wholeness, of reaching towards wholeness. And then there's also forces of fragmentation and, and, and kind of, the more that I learn, the more it is about the wholeness of nature versus when we try to fragment nature we, 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 and look at things in, in little different snippets as opposed to understanding the whole system, that's where we get into trouble with our ecology. And by striving in a spiritual sense towards relating to the whole, that's where we make progress, not only spiritually on an individual level, but in, in, in the groups as we're striving towards restoring landscapes and also towards just the ecological state. Yeah. 
Well, and that's spirituality at its best, this notion of wholeness. And when you really experience the wholeness, caring for the planet is, is just another aspect of caring for ourselves. So I'm glad you're seeing that. I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, there was a study done in 2012 uh, commissioned by then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and it was on water security. And I read the study, just to prepare for this conversation, and it comes to the conclusion that in six years, I was shocked, six years from now, droughts, floods, and freshwater depletion would increase the likelihood of water being used as a weapon of war or even a tool of terrorism. And in another study I read, they call it water jihad. Um, have you heard of that before? And, and, and any yeah. idea what people are doing about that? Well, I know that in at least in Syria, water has been used as a weapon of war, the control of water, the withholding of water. Um, yes, um, this is a potentiality. However, okay, first of all, the, in the research that I've seen, um, like fighting over water, isn't as much a problem. I mean, there's also the other side that that the need for water has also allowed people to collaborate to protect their water sources, to restore land so that the water flows and water is held in the landscape. So that happens just as much. So you know, I, I'm I'm wary of promoting you know fear in that way because I I feel really strongly that the answer is not to look at water as this finite thing that can be divvied up and, and you get some and I get some, as much as water is a process. And by understanding how the water cycle works, we can use, apply practices and engage with it in a way that allows there to be wa enough water for everybody. So, so yeah. You're sort of going back to the idea you had before about realizing that, I mean, I'm putting it in my own words, but it's not your water. It's the water that comes into a specific bioregion that may be shared by numbers of, of tribes or countries. I read somewhere that um, Pakistan and India are struggling over water, that China is building dams and, and India is afraid it's going to, they're, they're trying to strangle them, you know, by, by uh, blocking their water source. And when you think about that, the fact that Pakistan, India, and China are all nuclear powers, they go, uh oh, <laughs> we are in big trouble. But let's look at it from the opposite perspective, which is what I think you've just started to promote. Mm -hmm. If you could get the Chinese, Indians, and Pakistanis, just in this one example, to realize that this is a shared resource, that the little lines that separate these countries from one another are arbitrary for the most part and shouldn't prevent us from really stepping out of that very narrow worldview into the more holistic worldview that you're promoting based on natural facts on the ground rather than uh, political emotions in, in people's heads. And, and you're, you're optimistic that's happening. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned China. There's this huge, huge restoration project of the, the Los Plateau. It's an area about the size of Belgium. And by restoring the soil and terracing in a way that water flows and is held and planting trees so that water is held in the landscape rather than rushing off. So that's, that's a great place to stop because it's very hopeful. And, you know, the, the book, Water in Plain Sight, 
Hope for a Thirsty World is a hopeful book. And so let's just, we'll have to stop the conversation right there. My guest today was Judith Schwartz. She's the author of Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World. And a review of the book appears in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Judith's work on her website, judithdschwartz.com. Judith, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Our pleasure. Support for this show comes from Spirituality and Health's annual holiday gift guide, a special section in the November-December 2016 issue and on the uh, website, featuring inspiring and unique products. Reach our conscious community and reserve your advertising space today. You can email Tabitha at spiritualityhealth.com or you can call her at 231-933-5660, extension 305. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.